What's up, everyone? Welcome back. Another episode of the New Evangelicals. I got to find a better intro, or maybe not. That's just what I say. But hey, good to have you back on this episode. This is a powerful one, friends. Um, I interviewed Jamar Tisby. Um, he wrote the forward to a book. I have it right here called The Coming Race Wars by Dr. William Panel, um, who's actually a heavyweight in this field. You probably, you probably never heard of him, but he's been doing the work since like the 50s. This guy's the OG. This interview with Jamar, um, there's not a lot of words for it, honestly. It was eye-opening. It was thought-provoking. Um, Jamar just, you know, he just spoke from his heart, and I loved it. It was great. He is someone that, man, I just want to follow all the way. <laughs> like, Jamar, I'm behind you. Um, he's doing such great work <laughs> when it comes to, to race relations and just excuse me, sorry, just to um, get the word out that like, hey, there's a problem that we have to address in the church. So this one might challenge you, friends. I'm going to tell you right now, you know, it, it challenged me to, to better elevate Black voices, to donate more, to give them more time, to just elevate them on any platform I have. So uh, I have a lot to think about, honestly, but I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. Um, in fact, you know, I usually ask at this point, you know, make sure you like and subscribe, which please do. It's, it helps us to subscribe to the show and like it and review it. And I also usually ask for donations at this point, but do me a favor. Don't donate to me. I'm going to put a link in here for the witness. That's Jamar's um, thing. If you would, if you were thinking about donating to me for this episode, instead donate to Jamar, give them those finances. Um, there's plenty to go around. Um, we can all you know, make a living and survive doing this together. But I, I think it's important to do that. So anyway, I'm going to stop rambling. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode and I'll talk to you all soon. Well, Jamar, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for making time. I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, our our pre-show banter has already been good, so it's going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to it. You know, it's interesting because I've always wanted to have you on the New Evangelicals podcast, and I kind of got you on in a roundabout way because the publisher for the book we're talking about, The Coming Race Wars, uh, Krista is her name. She reaches out to, I guess, a bunch of us, and I saw this book and said, I want this book, and if I can get Jamar on, or even at the time I asked for the author, and she said, well, Jamar's doing the interviews. I said, pfft. Perfect. A match made in heaven. You're like, so. you're like, I've had to settle for a lot of things in the past year and a half. It's been a pandemic, so I'm used to settling for for second best. So you get me. <laughs> well, why don't we start Trust off me. here? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Trust me when I say you would rather talk to Dr. Bill Pinnell, but uh, he celebrated, I want to say, his 86th birthday recently, and so wow. uh, he he he's. Um, He's just, he's living, he's taking care of his wife, who's uh, not in the best health, but they've been together forever wow. and um, still sharp as a, as a, as a tack and uh, literally one of my mentors. So I'm happy wow. to, to, to stand in his stead, but there's absolutely no replacing Bill Pinnell. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm glad to have you on. Um, yeah, you know, I didn't know who Bill, Dr. Bill Pinnell was till this book. I did some digging on him, you know, teaching for 40 years. He wrote this book, I guess, in 92, The Coming Race Wars, and now it's being re-released in 2021. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. But there's so much to Dr. William Bill Pinnell. So okay. if, if I can just, you know, gush here. So I Go encountered Dr. Pinnell in my research into Tom Skinner. This is all part of my 
dissertation looking at um, part of it looks at uh, black evangelicals in the 20th century. And when you do that, you, you quickly stumble on Tom Skinner, who was a, a, a nationally renowned evangelist. Uh, they called him the, the black Billy Graham, which has all kinds of uh, issues with it, but <laughs> it gives you a sense of, of kind of his notoriety and his hmm. style. But his right-hand man, his lieutenant in his organization, uh, Tom Skinner Associates, was uh, Bill Pinnell. And in many ways, although Tom Skinner was the voice, uh, Bill Pinnell helped to shape the ideas that, that Skinner uh, then amplified through his, his really magnetic teaching and preaching. Uh, so, so in addition to the coming race wars, which came out in the 90s, uh, Bill Pinnell did something pretty exceptional long before that, back in 67 or 68, he published a book called My Friend, the Enemy. My Friend, the Enemy, talking about his experience as a black man mm. with white evangelicals. And this is in, this is the height of the black power movement, right? right. So this right. is all coming together at the same time. And he does this sort of, it's really the first book, especially one published by an evangelical publisher that was excuse me, it was Zondervan that, that published it. Yeah. And so they were taking a huge risk in, in, in the late 60s to publish a sort of black person's insider account of white evangelical racism. Hmm. So that's, far, that's how far ahead of his time wow. he's been. But he's also always been dedicated to, um, to the beloved community, to trying to make this interracial thing work. And so yeah. that's where he goes with uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. First, he was the first Black person on their board of trustees, yep. then gets appointed as uh, a professor, and he, ne he just never leaves. I mean, it's Southern California. It's Pasadena, so I don't blame him. <laughs> right. um, but he never leaves. 40 years, they name uh, the uh, William Pinnell uh, uh, Center after him yes. at, at, at Fuller, and he's an institution in and of himself. He is a repository of so much that has happened of import uh, within evangelicalism, especially uh, regarding race. And so he's just one of these folks where you sit down and, and, and you can listen to him for hours because the stories he tells are just gripping. And I'm so honored to have written this foreword um, and I've had the, the the pleasure and the privilege of having many, many conversations with Bill Pinnell. And I, I said from the start when they asked me to write uh, the this new sort of um, uh, expansion, this new introduction to the coming race wars, I said, when I write this, I, I, if I never write another word, wow, I, I, I'm fine wow. because I got to got to do something with Bill Pinnell. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Um... You know, from from the little I read about him, and then of course reading this book, I, I it was a, a really powerful and thought provoking read for me on, on this end. Just reading it, being like, "Wow, this was written in '92, but it could have been written this year and still be just as applicable." Which, in on, in one hand, shows how ahead of his time he was. Right. On the other hand, is a little discouraging. You know that that yeah. a lot of the same issues um, are still kind of 
happening and, and his critique is still a very valid critique maybe That's in right. some ways it's it's even deeper and and dare i say even worse off than before yeah. um you know in a lot of ways especially with with what we've seen from um i would say the more fundamentalist slash reform movement these days in in the book um I, the chapter i, I want to hone in on i really enjoyed um as i think such a poignant chapter was the one entitled Evangelicals in Their Urban Crisis. And yeah. he, he really talks about, now this is the 90s, right? How, right. you know, white churches left or, uh, the inner cities and, mm-hmm. and then critiqued black churches for, for being, I don't know, whatever, too radical. But yet he, he makes the point in the chapter that, that, that the black church holds the very orthodox beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think this critique keeps on happening over and over and over again without really any merit because that is, I mean, I've been part of many friends who pastor, you know, um, black American churches and they are as orthodox and sometimes even more than me with, with, with their beliefs, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't understand. So, so, I mean, there's a thing called theological racism, hmm. theological racism, which, which says that any, theology arising out of uh, black and brown, black or brown communities is uh, almost inherently inferior. And, and, and nobody would ever say that. It, it, we're just, we're, we're, we're not that blatant with it, but it comes through. I was in seminary, brother, it took me five years to get my <laughs> master's degree. I was in seminary a good minute. Hmm. And yeah. the only time I ever heard about black theology was in the context of what not to do. Wow. And these are these are men, you know, these are guys, professors who you wouldn't mind sitting down, having a coffee with a beer with if they're Presbyterian. Uh, (laughs) You know, they 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 know the Greek, they know the Hebrew and and they're not malicious or anything. Right. But but what does it say? Number one, that there was a, a glaring absence of any voices of color overall. So I actually had to. I, I, I don't think I don't I don't say this much. It's not it's not secret. I just would never the conversation really never goes here. But I, I uh, did my master's in divinity at Reformed Theological Seminary emphasis in missions. Why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's the only one that takes culture seriously and centrally in terms of a theological education, in my experience. Right. So if I wanted to read uh, theologians of color, if I wanted to learn about cultures that weren't European or white American, I had to do the missions concentration, mm-hmm. not because I had any calling to like go overseas and evangelize, but because that's that's where you got the culture. And, and, and there's a reason for that. There's a reason for that is because people don't think, lots of white people, especially the ones who teach this stuff, don't think that the theology coming out of these different people groups and contexts has as much to say. Now, all of that's a roundabout way to, 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 to get around to why Dr. Pinnell wrote that chapter. And he's emphasizing, listen, we have more in common than we do different. Right. Particularly theologically, right? Like yes. we're going to check all the same boxes on the Trinity, the, the divinity of Christ and the resurrection, the need for uh, personal repentance, all of that stuff. Right. Right in line. And the only difference <laughs> is the is 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 the color line. Yeah. And guess what? That's not even new. That's not a 90s thing. That's that's a that goes back to um, right after the Civil War. Yeah. 
one of the first things black people did was form their own denominations yep. because they were tired of being treated as second-class citizens in the household of God. Yeah. So, so it's got a very long history. And then can I add one more layer to this? Of course. So now as we record this, cities are cool again. You know, mm-hmm. people are going back to cities. They are gentrifying areas like that's the controversy and the conflict now what do we do about all these wealthy people coming into these materially poor areas and just taking over and kicking out people right yeah well back 20 30 years ago and and a bit further when dr pinnell was writing this white people were fleeing the city i mean just 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 a mass exodus of white folks to the suburbs, right? Yep. And there's all kinds of history around, um, you know, uh, they call them um, covenants, these racially exclusive covenants, where you'd have these posh subdivisions, and there would be a, a, a written or, or an, uh, a verbal kind of understanding that you, we're not going to let certain kinds of people in here, mm. right? Now, this, this is after official you know, federal housing authority redlining, right? But right. they still maintained the the color line, um, and and they did it through um, these racially restrictive covenants. They did it through mm-hmm. uh, unspoken agreements, and they most of all did it through through money. You know, where uh, people of a certain income just couldn't afford to be there. And guess what? Uh, most of the people who could afford to be there are white. So there's this fleeing of the cities and the churches along with it. Uh, Quick story, the church I went to in Jackson, Mississippi, it started with a a building and a a core group of people, but the vast majority of people, it was an existing congregation is what I'm saying. And the reason that this intentionally uh, multiracial church took over and got its start there is because this predominantly white congregation relocated to a white suburb. And then they, they, they basically set up the arrangement for the black pastor to come in and do this interracial thing. Right. And this is, you know, early two thousands. Right. So it's not that long ago. So I just wanted to set the context for Dr. Pinnell writing about this quote unquote urban crisis is, um, it was in the context of white people in general and white evangelicals in particular, just fleeing the cities and characterizing them as these dens of iniquity that didn't have Jesus, yeah. these benighted places spiritually and materially. And the only contact a white evangelical might have speaking, you know, in generalizations, sure, but of course. Uh, what, what Dr. Pinnell is responding to, the only uh, contact a white evangelical might have with the inner city is some sort of paternalistic uh, parachute in uh, relief, you know, yes. giving out food, do a, do a Bible study or a, you know, summer day camp kind of thing and parachute out. That's right. So that, that right. was the context. Well, I, I'm, you know, I'm listening to uh, the rise Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, the podcast, Christianity Today. It's, it's great. It's I mean, I'm, I'm literally addicted. And they, I think it's in that series where they talk about how some of those early megachurches in like the 80s and 90s, 
you know, they, the, the story they would tell is we felt God leading us here, but the reality was they were doing their research and finding that, okay, all the people who we want to attract are in the suburbs now. So let's plant in Orange County. Let's plant in this suburb. And you have this intentional, I guess we can call it white, you know, flight in a lot of ways saying we're out of the city. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we'll just say God led us and maybe to a degree they felt that, but it was also backed up by data that, oh, this also makes sense as well. Right. And I, I do want to read, um, you know, there is a quote in the book that I read and thought, wow, this is um, so accurate. It's, it's, it's a little bit long, but I would love to get your reaction to it. It's kind of what you're talking about. He says in the book, suburban churches that have any contact with the city will continue to critique the viability of the urban church's definitions of ministry there. But black mm-hmm. Christians find it difficult to listen. They know that white churches opted out of the city years ago, thus forfeiting the right to define anything for them. They also know that while the white church, especially its evangelical wing, is often critical of urban churches' attempts to contextualization, uh, 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 I'm sorry, contextualize the gospel, there is no better example of questionable contextualization than the experience of that very suburban church. He goes on to say, and this for me, this one gave me chills when I read it. Truly, it is sometimes hard to tell where the evangelical church leaves off and secular American culture begins. Now, if that is not a prophetic word for 2021 and 2016 all the way through, I do not know what is because I for a, for a good minute I thought he I thought this book was written in 2021 when I read that I'm yeah. like he's talking yeah. about now right because <laughs> I mean we and this is honestly why my account the New Evangelicals has grown the way it has and why we we continue to grow because I'm sure you know a lot of us are deconstructing this secular American nationalism with Christianity baked right into the mix of it. And we're reading authors like you, like Ibram Kendi, like this book. You know, I'm reading um, Stand from the Beginning. And I'm, my jaw is just, I mean, I, I, I tweeted the other day, I was taught American mythology, not American history as a child. Ooh, you know? Come on now. Come uh, through. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> What's your Twitter account? I got to follow right now. At, uh, at New Evangelicals, no E. But, uh, <laughs> there you go. There you go. But my point is, is that, you know, I'm just realizing that this is not new, but it is in full, the, the, the fruit is, is ripe, so to speak, right? And the seeds have been planted for a long time. You know, what are some of your thoughts on this stuff? So I'm going to get, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to start in reverse and start with the practical because I was just posting about it this morning on Facebook. Um, There was somebody who had asked me to be on a podcast with one of these, um, you know, critical race theorist fear mongers, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. one of these folks crying, you know, the sky is falling because of this obscure legal theory literally taught in law school, not K through 12, but that's a whole other story. Uh So, so they, they, they asked me to be on this show and I'm like, no, because they wanted this sort of debate, whatever. I'm like, no, but here's a more helpful thing to do. Amplify voices of people who have researched uh, racial justice and anti-racism and people who are advocating for it and activists who are taking action on it yeah. because oftentimes those voices are drowned out by the people you know crying wolf over some pet culture war issue that changes right. you know with every couple of years absolutely so, you know to the folks listening to this uh i think one of the most helpful and effective things you can do is amplify the voices of dr bill pinnell through the coming race wars right Tweet about that, share about that, 
pull your quotes about that and 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 give less of the airtime or the mic time to these folks who are honestly it's not about debate debate has to be good good faith on both sides totally agree and 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 most of this stuff is not in good faith the good faith efforts to understand critical race theory are not coming from the people who have the microphones and who are at the most extreme side of it it's the regular folks who who look at these people that they trust or or their voices they want to listen to the people who have a platform and 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 it's those people who are crying wolf about critical race theory and it's the it's the regular folks yeah. the folks who fill yeah. the pews the folks who are just parents and going to work every day it's the regular folks who are like wait a minute is there something to this i do want to know more right that's right. different that's totally different yeah what i'm saying is yeah even for those folks who really genuinely want to know well what should we think about this bill pinnell knew bill pinnell knew 30 years ago yeah bill pinnell if you go back to the 70s he knew 50 years ago right yeah. mm-hmm. why didn't we know why didn't we know Right. Right. It's because voices like his, the prophets, get drowned out. Yeah. And so he knew from an inside perspective. I mean, he's 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 with white evangelicals way before it was socially acceptable. I'm talking all the way back to the 50s Mm. when he's a teenager, you know. Right. He's 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 got interaction. I think I think he comes to faith through. It was an Anabaptist tradition. It might have been Quakers, you know. So, so he's he's been around white Christians a real long time. And by the time he publishes My Friend the Enemy, he knows the score. Hmm. And yeah. he never sort of sells out his own people, he never right. sells out black people in the midst of it. Uh always maintained a vital connection to um, urban areas and and predominantly black areas and has immense respect from black people, which is a big indicator, right? Yeah, a lot of definitely. the black folks that folks on the right like to lift up do not have following from black people, uh-huh. which is telling. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what your question was, but man, <laughs> well, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's man. there. Yeah. You know, I, I think I'm just, I'm, as someone who I'm so, you know, I, I, I read your, both of your books. They're great, by the way. Um, and last time you and I talked on my, my old podcast, you know, I kind of asked like, you know, where does someone like me start? Cause I'm just such a, I'm, I'm this is so new to me. And I feel like I have no, yeah. I have no right to make any statements <laughs> about things I do not know anything about. Right. Like, I'm not sure if you, do you know how to play drums by any chance? Are you, are you, are you a drummer? novice all yeah. right well, uh, my yeah. best friend played drums and so I, I followed along with him well i imagine like you know if you came over i've been playing for 20 years and you're like listen tim here's how you here's the right techniques and i'd be like <laughs> well i appreciate your opinion on this That's you know right. but That's you know, it's same, right, same kind of idea here we're like a lot of people like myself right we received an evangelical culture we we learned the mythology of america america's a good god-fearing nation we grew up on on talk radio that that's my life right and all of a sudden, over the past, like, maybe, I don't know, 10 years or so, right? I'm 32. So, yeah, past 10 years, slowly seeds are planted of, like, maybe it's not all what I think. And now I'm realizing, like, wow, it's nothing like what I think. And all I can do is listen, 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 and elevate That's voices good. that are not mine, right? And That's so good. it's, like, I think what I'm having a hard time with is is just realizing how deep this rabbit hole goes. I mean, That's it right. is, it's truly shocking. 
I, it's unbelievable. And guys like, like you know, um, Dr. Pennell here, the books that they've written, I, I'm wondering, I mean, why weren't these ever, I was exposed to this. I can give you the books I was exposed to. This was not one of them. And this guy's been doing the, the real work. He's an OG. And I never an heard OG. this guy. And he, he's a devoted Christian, right? Mm-hmm. Devoted Jesus follower, mm-hmm. putting in the work. And my faith tradition knows nothing about him. Mm-hmm. My mind is blown. That's by design. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, and it, it, so here's the thing, people, I think we have this impression that racists are walking around in white robes and hoods with torches and we'll know it when we see it. Mm. But as long as we're not seeing that, it's not happening. Because mm. what I'm trying to emphasize is when I say this is by design, yeah. I'm not saying that 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 you have this group of white men in a boardroom twisting their mustaches saying, <laughs> how are we going to keep black people out? Right. It's not that blatant usually, sometimes, right. sure. But 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 what happens is subtle. So um there was a study that said in a 100 friend scenario, if you break it down by race, white people would have uh, 90 friends who are white and um, the rest of the 10 are different racial groups. Of that 10 that are different racial groups, white people in a 100 friend scenario would have one black friend. Hmm. Now, why do you have one black friend? Well, part of its quantity uh, up until uh, the 21st century, white, white people have been by far the majority demographically but it's also because of things like redlining and restrictive covenants and segregated Mm -hmm. schools so there is an intentionality to keep white and black people apart and then when that's your social network and you go to say okay i need to put together my syllabus or i need to uh, fill my church library are you going to go to black people no you 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 got that one quote-unquote black friend which they don't the 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 study doesn't say you know how close a friend that is right um and, and, and what are the chances that they're, you know, they've published a book or something like that, right? So, so it just gets sort of instantiated because of the way society is broadly structured, which is along racial lines, which is racist, which is white supremacist. And then when that happens so long for years and years and years and years, even though the book, for instance, My Friend the Enemy made a splash when it came out, yeah. it's been 50 years. Right. And, right. And, and when you when when that amount of time passes for any book, it's going to fade. But especially when um, the people with the biggest platforms and the biggest microphones aren't trumpeting this kind of stuff, it's going to get lost. Goes back to my point I made a minute ago. What can we do is amplify these voices. How do we make sure the coming race wars doesn't get drowned out? First of all, it's this beautiful cover. It is a good cover. Yeah. Let's just pause and acknowledge this is eye-catching. I thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, 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 you know, the folks at University Press have have done their part. And and Dr. Bill Pinnell has done his part. We have to do our part. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing it with this podcast and talking about the book. Are the folks listening? Are you going to post about it on Facebook, on Twitter, on your um, email blast, uh, in your staff meeting at your church? Is it going to be in your library at your church? Like, are you going to request it f- for your local library? Mm. Like, this is the real work that individuals can do. And nobody have to have anything special to amplify good work. You what, do you, what do you say? You know, because I'm I'm pretty 
I'm still pretty steeped intentionally on following a lot of these like reformed circles, fundamentalist <laughs> circles. I mean, I, I I watch what they say. I'm watching David's Platt, uh, Platt's mutiny on his hands right now. I'm not sure if you heard That's about incredible. that. It's oh, yeah. unbelievable. All right, you know things are bad when David Platt's too liberal. Like, what? <laughs> okay. But I digress. You know, I so I'm, I'm pretty tuned in. I watch the SBC stuff. I've seen all that stuff. I've read the books that have come out, you know. And the big – here's the big uh, – critique and air quotes I hear, right? This isn't the gospel. This is mm. not the true gospel. Social justice isn't biblical justice. You know, it, it's it's these taglines, but ironically, like you said, assuming that for them, because they, they like to simplify the gospel, the gospel is the death and resurrection of, 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 of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Let's assume that, that that's what it is. We would say, yeah, of course, yeah, that is, yeah, what's, what's wrong with that? So what do you say to that, I think, you know, ridiculous, but it's a critique that people take seriously, to that critique of... Of, hey, hey, man, stick to the gospel, okay? Yeah. This is not a gospel issue. Right. Um, I mean, questions, asking questions, because the reality is, I can't remember who said it, but 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 it just rocked me. And I think it was on a completely different issue. But but there they were dealing with a similar dynamic of people who had who who had a very shallow understanding of something they said was very dangerous. And this person said, you know, somebody's uh, one follow-up question away from exposing themselves, mm. from exposing their in, 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 their ignorance, from exposing their racism, right? Yeah. So, so question after question after question. Number one, questions, depending on how you ask them, can be a lot less confrontational than just sort of retorting or, or giving a rebuttal, right? Absolutely. You say your point, I'll say my point, and we're going back and forth, back and forth. You say your point. Um, where 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 did you where did you learn that? It's going to be a remarkably consistent answer with a lot of folks. They're going to say some right wing pundit. Totally, it's going to it's going to be some personality on Fox News. It's going yep. to be uh, 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 some personality on their own sort of independent podcast or whatever it might be. And then um, you keep asking questions. Well, have you read so and so on this topic? Um, do you know any of the, the history behind this? Is there a way, do you think that racism can still occur without these more overt forms of somebody using the N-word or putting a sign over a drinking fountain, right? Mm -hmm. Or when did racism end, do you think? Like, when did it cease to become like this major social issue? Because most people, even uh, folks who are really, really concerned about critical race theory, they'll say racism it's undeniable it's been a problem right and then so but a long time ago and right. today it's not a problem right? right so then ask them you know when 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 did it when did it cease to become this this big problem that it that you admit it once was right so all i'm saying is like when you ask these questions it reveals people's you know centimeter deep understanding of what actually is going on with racial dynamics, you know, mm. back to your drumming analogy, right? It's like <laughs> they 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 picked up drumsticks. It, they they just got it out of the package. Like right. it comes with the wrapped in that little cardboard thing and pull it out. <laughs> they right. just got it out. That's right. And now they're saying this is how you do it. Right. And you're right. like, hmm, really? Right. right. Yeah. When, when how do you use the hi hat? Right. You know? <laughs> what, what, what's, what you know? What, what what do you think? What do you think about uh uh you know? Who's your favorite drummer? Right, right, right. All that, 
Right. Well, I feel like that really applies right now to the biggest, the newest boogeyman, the CRT boogeyman, yeah, right? Absolutely. It's, it's coming absolutely. for your wives, coming from your kids. You got to hide everyone, <laughs> right. right? I mean, they're passing laws. It, it, oh, my goodness. It, it, I got to say, it is impressive how yeah. quick a, a, um, a I'm going to say conservative movement, a conservative Christian political movement can really redefine. Something that has existed for what, 50 years, 45, 50 years in academia, right? No, never been, to, oh, not a peep. And all of a sudden, it's like this has just, the devil yeah. himself has stirred this up and thrown it. Almost like in Power Rangers when Rita throws the guy down to earth and he just like, yeah, that's what I think about. It's like <laughs> out of nowhere, right? Here, here it comes. And, <laughs> right? and, 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 on, yeah. and it's also impressive how they've been able to redefine what CRT is now? Listen, I need to say right now, I I'm just learn. I I can just see the surface from ten thousand feet of CRT. That's my knowledge right, of this. All right, right but right, I can tell right. you, it ain't, it ain't what I'm being told. You know why 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 this push to just to demonize an academic law term, in your yeah. perspective? Um, it's to reinstantiate white supremacy. Wow. Quite simply, hmm. it, it, this happens throughout U.S. history. I, yeah. I don't study critical race theory either. I study history. <laughs> right, right. And, 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 and you don't need to have this legal framework to, to discover, oh, this stuff is this what I say in The Color of Compromise. Racism never goes away. It just adapts. Yes, yes. And, and the adaptation, the trajectory is from more overt to more covert. And in a way, the more covert is more dangerous because it's less visible. Right. Right, right. Right. Why does carbon monoxide kill people? Right. Can't see it, can't smell it, but it's in the air and it's poison. Yeah. And yeah. and that's how racism adapts, right? We're killing the analogies today. I love we it. got we got drumming, we got we got power rangers, <laughs> just carbon for monoxide. It, man. <laughs> this is creative. But you, you um, need these uh, analogies to really put like some kind of picture in my mind you yes, know because it yes. is it is hard to grasp i gotta be honest like even for you know even as i'm learning i do feel like you know it's not blatant in my face there aren't people in That's white right. hoods you know I, I i can look back at jim crow laws and now they're technically not on the books at least as, as blatantly right mm-hmm. so it, mm-hmm. it is and i wouldn't say hard but i've had to really re re like adjust my lens and have to listen yep. just listen and read yep. listen and read yep. listen and read yep. because it, it, it is not as blatant as i would like to think it is in my context right, That's right. which doesn't yep. mean that it, it doesn't mean that doesn't exist <laughs> it just means that my lens is not correct that's right okay um, there's so much to unpack here one 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 thing is you know people are like well you, you guys keep saying systemic racism and that's what it is and what's an example um, there's lots of books on this. Um, a new one out is um, is, it, is it how the word is passed by Clint Smith. Um, another book is Elizabeth S. Hinton from the War on Poverty to the War on Crime. That's a really good one because she unpacks this idea of quote unquote law and order, mm. which gets back to Bill Pinnell talking about the urban crisis yes. in the sixties, especially when there are these urban uprisings um, or rebellions, right? White people want to call them riots, but really it's a powder keg of all of these um, uh, problems in the inner city, which have been created 
by people, by, by white people uh, uh, that are discriminating against black and brown people. I don't have time to go into the history of all that right now. Sure. But, you know, when you're when you're in this sort of concentrated situation of injustice and, and every now and again, the lid pops off. White people want to call that a riot. Um, people mm. who, who study this stuff call it an uprising or a rebellion against oppression, right? So anyway, you know, you have huge urban uprisings like Watts in 1965, which by the way, um, as, a, as a demonstration between white evangelicals and black Christians, Billy Graham uh, gets word of it. This is all over the country. It's a huge deal. Um, he goes to LA to Watts and puts on a bulletproof vest and gets in a helicopter and flies above the carnage and then comes back saying, uh, we need more law and order. Mm. Comes back preaching a message of, you know, you, you know, we got too many lawless people and, and the nation is going down the tubes. By contrast, MLK goes too. Mm. No bulletproof vest, no helicopter. He walks on the streets. He talks to the people and he comes back saying a riot is the language of the unheard. Mm. Wow. Perfect wow. example there yeah. of the difference. And that's racism, right? Because everybody knows Watts is a black neighborhood. Mm. You don't even have to say it. And then when you say we need law and order, what are you saying? You're saying we need more policing in black communities because there's something wrong with those black people. Right. They're prone to criminality. Even yes. when I was in yeah. seminary, they told me, don't go to this neighborhood. Don't go to that side of town. Why? Yeah. Well, there's all this crime there. Well, yeah, maybe. I don't know. Do you know? Because you've never been there. And have you ever noticed that, quote unquote, that part of town always has the black and brown people? Right. Is that because black and brown people have a, a, a gene for criminality, which is what somebody yes. said on a famous podcast recently? Mm. Or is it because of something structural? Yep. Yep. Right. Yep. So so all of that's going on. And mm. um, what I'm saying is, if you want examples of systemic racism, look at how uh, policing and incarceration yep. has grown in the past half century or so to yep. make the United States have only five percent of the world's population, but 25 percent of its incarcerated population and either um, a super high percentage, I can't remember if it was 40 or 60 percent of the black population that's incarcerated globally is in the U.S., right? Wow. So, so anyway, that's one of the things. Um, the other thing I'll say is this stuff about critical race theory started in the church. A lot of people now know about it because it got into state lawmakers offices mm -hmm. and 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 even the white house yep. there was an executive yep. order issued in um november i think of 2020 yeah uh, or october somewhere around there um and uh that's when it went sort of mainstream but yeah. i knew about this stuff back in 2015 when an author we were talking about before we started recording started talking about cultural marxism mm. And that quickly morphed into um, there was another podcast host 
he got a hold of the uh, podcast I did immediately after the 2016 election. If you want to know more about it, go uh, listen to Pass the Mic or Leave Loud episode. Mm, anyway, yes. yeah. he was talking about critical race theory stuff. I can't remember if he used that exact label, but this is back in 2016, right? And um, fomenting the fear and laying the groundwork for it. And all of this is bubbling up in white fundamentalist evangelical circles long before it hits the political scene. And the last, last, last thing I'll say, Robert P. Jones' book, White Too Long, is as in your face about the correlation between whiteness and Christianity and the way one, uh, whiteness corrupts Christianity as, as anyone I've seen recently. And um, Robert P. Jones is the founder of the Public Religion Research Institute. He's a, he's a data scientist and he has all of these statistics that say the probability of a white person being racist increases if they're a Christian. Mm. So he looked at all of these measures. He didn't just come right out and ask, hey, are you a racist? <laughs> Look at all these indicators, right? That, that um, you know, ideas that racists would hold. And he said, you know, the data show that the more Christian a white person is, the, the higher they're going to rate according to these racist indicators. Um, can I say something that, that might get me in trouble? Those are the best ones. Go ahead. Isn't that connection, though, just our American Christian heritage at work? Right? I mean, we can look back and see how the doctrine of discovery, how the Pope gave permission that whatever we discover is, is ours because Jesus Christ and God told us so. Right, and we can trace that kind of all the way up through you know race-based chattel slavery, as you say, and how we have to save the black man by enslaving him for his own good, and then we can go through the Jim Crow laws, and then we can look at Bob Jones going up to the <laughs> Supreme Court, right, and saying, "Sorry, the racist should not integrate." And there, I actually have a sermon of his; I have it. It's typed out, and it is the same language we hear today with other topics of mm. it's, the Bible's clear, God has ordained it, mm. right? And so, I mean, and then we look at. 2016, we look at Trump and we look at all those movements, right? And and isn't that the fruit? I mean, I I want to say I'm surprised, but the more I read, the more I'm like, I'd be surprised if we if it wasn't that because That's it's right. it's in the the white evangelical heritage minus the Wesleyan tradition. All right, th- those radicals over there, you know, the the people like Oberlin College, you know, the guys right, that right. I love. I'm actually in the middle of, uh, I'm going to show another book, this book here, Discovering an Evangelical Heritage. Oh, and, I want to see that one. Okay. Oh, it's a great read. Anyway, so there's definitely the radicals, but the actual culture, like what, what, what you should be supporting, lands with what you just said. And, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and as, as someone who's trying to reclaim the evangelical mantle, it is sometimes very difficult, Jamar. It's, it's hard work, man. That's right. Like, what are you reclaiming, at least in the U.S. context, right? right. Like, how, how, what era, what age, what stream of evangelicalism, at, at least as adopted by people of European descent, is, is, is devoid of this toxic admixture of 
whiteness and white supremacy. And the Bible says, if you add anything to the gospel, it's not the gospel anymore. So what's happened in the United States is they added white supremacy to the gospel. Yeah, It's no longer the gospel, but guess what? They're still using gospel language. A hundred percent. They're still calling it the gospel. They're still calling it Christianity. They're still calling it holy and righteous. Totally. Um, but they've added this thing. Yeah. Yeah. Called white supremacy that actually negates it. Yeah. They, 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 they can't coexist. And, and, and the insidious part, we've been talking a lot about critical race theory. What I also always tell people when it comes up is, um, yeah, 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 CRT. But the real issue, we have, to, we have to come back to the real issue, which is Christian nationalism. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. We need to spend 150 to 200 percent more time talking about Christian nationalism than yep. critical race theory. And the insidious part about Christian nationalism is that it is so commonplace. Most people just think of it as Christianity. You're so on the money. The implication there is if you challenge white supremacy, you're challenging their very faith. Exactly. Exactly. And so people think that that when I talk about, you know, the, the insurrection on January 6th, and I'll never forget the date because the day before January 5th is when my book, How to Fight Racism, came out. Um, but on January 6th, you see all of these sort of Christian symbolism. Oh, yeah. A huge wooden cross, somebody holding a Bible. Um, the Christian uh, flag in the, the Capitol Christian building. Flag. Trump is my savior. Jesus is my president. All of it, right? Oh, yeah. And, and, oh, yeah. and the QAnon shaman, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Saying a prayer, not just a prayer, a prayer that he closes in Jesus' name. That's Literally. Right. You can go That's back right. and look at the video. I so, posted it. You're absolutely right. Right. And so when, when, when you say, actually, this stuff, you know, what we saw at the Capitol is the most extreme visible manifestation, but actually, we're seeing it day to day and week to week in churches, in white evangelical churches, white Christian nationalist churches. Why? Yep. How does it, it's an American flag in the pulpit. That's right. It's, it's a That's huge right. celebration right. of the 4th of July. Yep. Like it's a liturgical holiday. Robert Jeffrey's church. Up. I watched it. Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. It's idolatry. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, holding up the constitution as a divinely inspired document. Yes. If I had more time in my in my in my academic research, I think it would be really fruitful to look at the um, similarities in hermeneutics between biblical literalists and constitutional originalists. Yes, they're yes. using the same hermeneutic a lot of times because these folks are the same folks. They look at the Constitution the way they look at the Bible, which is that it is divinely inspired and you yep. can't mess with it as original in its original whatever right right so so there's all of that and and all of that is why for white christians especially it is so earth-shattering and disruptive to discover the difference between the christianity of jesus and the christianity of america yes because you just knew it as christianity that's right now you've got to go back and almost start over um, and say, what can I trust? And I went through this, even as a black person, right? Because I was, I was, I was neck deep in this European reformed right. theology. Yeah. Yeah. The witness, you know, yeah. that, that I started as reformed African-American network. I went to reformed theological seminary. I was reading Piper and all of these folks. Sure. And then 
especially around 2014 when Mike Brown is killed and Black Lives Matter comes on the scene nationally. It had actually been created the year before, but, uh, and then you start to speak out like about police brutality and systemic racism. And I saw the backlash among these reformed folks who I thought were my group. Totally. It was, it was disorienting to put it nicely. Um, yeah. You know, I, I've had to hold back screaming yes the whole time for the sake of the podcast audio. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see me doing this and not the whole time because you're really speaking my language now, Jamar. You know, this stuff gets me fired up because yeah. the, what the picture you painted is the is the picture that millions of us have just like woken up to. You know, like over, I would say since from I mean, a lot of us have been thinking about it. I would say for me, the highlights 2016 was a moment where I go. Okay, something's really wrong. Like I'm a Jesus follower. I thought we're all Jesus followers. We're voting for this guy named Trump after this Hollywood access tape comes out. We're calling, mm. you know, like we're justifying it like something is way wrong, right? So already alarm bells are, are in my head are like they're screaming. And I'm outspoken. I have a I have a podcast about this. I'm getting a lot of pushback. I'm I'm shocked because I'm thinking yeah. like, wait, well, how is me saying no, I don't pledge allegiance to the flag radical for a Jesus follower when my allegiance is to Jesus and not a flag? Or why is it radical to say we shouldn't have the American flag in our church services? This is not radical stuff. But for a lot of people, like you said, the Christianity of America is Christianity and anything else is a threat, right? And then all of a sudden for me, what really rocked me and really just for me broke, the, the dam just shattered, was the Ahmad Arbery situation. Mm. That murder, that murder, I mean, was when I, I, I went on my Facebook and said, this is horrible, this is wrong. I mean, I don't know, I'm just feel my passion at this point, you know, just saying, yeah. Yeah. we have to do something here, you know? And it was the beginning for me to realize like, Okay, the racism is, it's not gone like, like I thought or I was taught. There is a problem here. Mm -hmm. Then we had George Floyd, mm -hmm. Rona Taylor, mm -hmm. you know, and, and as I got more outspoken, I found people more and more who were deconstructing their faith. And by faith, it's really theology. You know, I tell people, you're yeah. having a crisis of theology, not of faith. Most of us That's still good. believe in Jesus, we believe in God, but our theology is the crisis, that's you know, mm, and, mm. and, and that's why, and this is not a bragging point at all, but my account went from in December, 2000 people to now almost 20,000 today, mm. you know, and it's not because of me. I'm just saying what we all think, you know, right, Hey, this nationalism right. thing is an issue. Hey, we should be more open, more room at the table. We should listen to black voices and biopic voices, right? Things that, that, yeah. that now to me are so common sense to me. were not a while ago. Of course I had to right. progress there. But I say that, Jamar, because if it's any consolation to you, there are, I can safely say, millions of white evangelicals who are saying, we have a major problem, Christian nationalism is the threat, not CRT, and we have got to push the church to reform as, as quickly as possible, because we have okay. major problems, major the problems. Problem, the problem I'm encountering is the folks who you're describing and that you're a part of we have to mobilize. I agree. We have to get together and coordinate a lot better than we have been. And if you look, we, 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 I think we were talking before the show, if you look at um, Amazon books and say the Christian social issues category, which is where my books are listed, yep. the top five, 10 spots are these folks who are promoting Christian nationalism, or Absolutely. putting out crappy books, uh, refuting straw man arguments totally. to, to, to promote this fear mongering 
about critical race theory. And so the question, what do we do about that? Right? Like, like, like we, okay. So theologically speaking, I am more and more convinced that the people um, who are following Jesus, whatever that means, you know, for, for how they view race, how they do church, like they're changing their lives in order to conform to Christ. We're always going to be a remnant. Yeah. We're always going to be leaven. We're always going to be mustard seed. We're, we're going to be Gideon's army in comparison to the folks who, who, who go another way. Um, even folks who call themselves Christian, right? So, so there's that level of understanding that we'll never be, if you're waiting for the majority to get <laughs> on the same page about racial justice you yeah. you're, you're gonna be dust before that happens right right all that being said we can still do a lot better coordinating and mobilizing the resources we have i, mean, I, I don't care at this point whether it's self-serving but uh the witness when we struggle financially yeah. and there's zero reason for it given the amount of awareness and attention that uh, you know has been given to racial justice in the past year and a half, right? Like, if you really want to do something, and this is one of the things where where even white people who are awakening to these issues is still a steep learning curve. You've actually got to support black people. It cannot be more white people, even if they're saying good things. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah. so, so Beth Moore has done me uh, a great service several times simply by retweeting, simply by um, recommending my books. Now, she has an incredible platform and, and voice and everything like that. But if that happens on a micro scale again and again and again and again, it makes a difference. And so one of the turns I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that white folks who are, you know, racially conscious now or, or really want racial, it's like, it's not going to be the same cast of characters leading the way anymore. Right. It, it can't be, and it shouldn't be. hundred percent. It's often been said that the black church is the truest expression of Christianity in the United States. Mm. If we look at Christian nationalism as, as sort of the most widespread and corrupt form, yep. then the form of Christianity that arose in direct opposition to Christian nationalism and white supremacy yeah. is going yeah. to be much more true. Yeah. And that's what the Black church tradition is. I'm not saying, you know, it's perfect because it's filled with human beings who are fallen and sinners and all of that stuff. But when you look at sort of the thrust of, of, of understanding the faith, it, it it's going to come from folks like black Christians. More generally, it's going to come from the marginalized and oppressed. It's yeah. going to come from women. It's going to come from our, our Latin descended folks. It's going to come yeah. from, yeah. Uh, you know, um, Native American and indigenous people, right? It's going to come from these groups, but especially in the context of the United States where white supremacy was enshrined in race-based chattel slavery. And we're still right. dealing with the legacy of all that. Yeah. The black church. Yeah. And if we are not amplifying the voices of Black Christians, Micah Edmondson is brilliant. The way he theologizes 
He's a uh, uh, black Presbyterian. They have those. He's a black Presbyterian pastor and church planner. Uh, he and his brilliant wife, Dr. Christina Edmondson, they both have their PhDs, uh, uh, recently relocated to Nashville, and they're, they're planting a church, Koinonia Church there. But he wrote a book on MLK's theology of redemptive suffering. He was the first black PhD out of um, Calvin Seminary mm. in Grand Rapids. Yeah. How many people know about Micah Edmondson? Malcolm Foley is my good friend doing incredible work. He's uh, religious studies. He's getting his PhD studying black Protestant reactions to lynching from 1890 to 1920. Wow. You want to talk about some good theologizing. That's what he's studying, right? How many, how many folks know about Malcolm Foley and his work? Um, the Ladies of Truth's Table, Christina Edmondson, Michelle Higgins, Ekemeni Uwan. They, I just I mean, found them on Instagram, I think, a couple of days ago, but I yeah. never heard of them until, until, you, until like recently. Listen, listen, I'm just saying, if we want to really take action, if yeah. we want if, if, if we want to end this podcast and say, what can I do mm. immediately follow these folks, amplify these folks, quote these folks, make make uh, uh, memes and, and put the, the the picture and the words on there. So it's shareable, like do everything in your power to make sure these good, healthy, biblically sound prophetic, justice-oriented voices get heard. That's all I'm saying. And fund it. Yeah. I think, why do we have, first of all, we have this reticence to talk about money. I have been with a broke nonprofit long enough not to care <laughs> anymore. And I'm asking for money constantly. Can I, I'm sorry. I don't know how this long this goes. As I long as say, you want. I brother, got nowhere listen, to be. I'm saying, this is what, what is a gut punch to me. Mm. The Witness Foundation uh, just launched its first cohort of Witness Fellows. This is six people. Um, four of them, they're, 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 they're getting a total of $100,000 each over the course of two years to fund their racial justice oriented organizations. One is working with um, people who have been uh, released from incarceration. Another is working with uh, black disabled folks in black churches. Uh, another one, they're splitting the money, but uh, there was a group in Northwest Arkansas that said, we got a lot of work to do here and we've got some people doing good work. We want to uh, help fundraise for it and uh, 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 you know, give it to some, some of these local organizers. If that happened, look, in any other field, if you had a $50,000, you know, book award, if you had a $50,000 um, fellowship, I'm in academia, most fellowships, you know, 20 or $30,000 fellowship is at the premium level. Okay. Most might give you 3,000, 5,000, 10,000. If you got a $50,000 academic fellowship, you would be in an elite category. When we fund six different people at that level for two years, not a blip on the radar. We did press releases. We sent it to our 
contacts. Nobody took it up. We raised half a million dollars by the sweat of our brow mm. through small donations. We didn't have, you know, we had a couple um, five digit donations, but most of them were just small donations. Mm. What we need, if I'm dreaming big, is an endowment. If we had a $6 million endowment, we could fully fund five fellows every year just off the interest mm. and wouldn't have to fundraise for that ever again. If we had a $10 million endowment, we could fund the operating budget for the Black Christian Collective and the Witness Foundation. And to put that in perspective, when you look at ministries like Samaritan's Purse, which is led by Franklin Graham, mm. they have almost a billion dollar budget. It's like wow. 900 million. Wow. Who was it? Jeff Bezos just gave Van Jones $10 million to give away. Just here you go. Right. 10 million. Right. And you're saying, and I'm saying our churches, our Christian people who were so catalyzed, like you were with Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, uh, George Floyd, we can't put together enough money to fund Black Christian ministries, not just mm. The Witness. Mm. Jude 3 Project with Lisa Fields, Be the Bridge uh, mm -hmm. uh, with Latasha Morrison. Yeah. Uh, so many others, you know? Yeah. Truth's Table. Mm -hmm. they, they got Patreon. Go become a Patreon supporter. When did it get to where writing a check was like, oh, well, that's, that's beneath me. Mm. When you look at the racial wealth gap, you understand that writing a check to black organizations is a a disruptive confrontational thing to do in a white supremacist society hmm. that's my soapbox i'm sorry done please i mean jamar don't be sorry i have you on because i you know we have to have this conversation i mean asking for money is awkward you know like i've done it it's it's a bizarre feeling but it's the reality and we can't feel bad about it right you can't you cannot feel bad about that and i like what you're saying because honestly i'm being very transparent it's very challenging for me to hear you say that you know think all right like how do i help be part of this change you know like i have my family to feed but also like how can we you know make this work because there's we know that there's plenty to go around right if jeff bezos can fly to space and not even take a 0.01 percent pay cut right certainly the money is there all right and we, we can talk about capitalism a different day and how that's linked to the white supremacy yeah. all right but i think my audience we were, bad, we're hitting them enough over the head you know we're getting in enough trouble with one episode <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah you know but i i i i am with you when, when you, you made a comment and i you know i i'm grateful for your time and i'm fine as long as you are but i know we're at the hour mark and i, I want i want to be, be respectful but you made a comment that I've actually been thinking about a lot too, which is how do, how do we mobilize? You know, how mm -hmm. do we get connected? How because there are enough people that are at least at like the first stone of like, okay, I know it's not nationalism, and there's something better on the other side, right? And, and we're kind of there's all these accounts now, kind of pushing people in like this deconstruction and rethinking, renegotiating their faith kind of moment on every level, whether yeah. it's racial lines, theological lines, you know, all kinds of things. And I'm like, okay, I'm seeing this. Accounts are growing. My account's are growing. I know that your platform is continuing to grow. I'm like, okay, there there is at least an aroma in the air of like, <laughs> there's something going on, right? I'm sure we can look through history and find these moments. I look back again at, 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 at the Wesleyan tradition of how, you know, Oberlin College had the Underground Railroad. They were breaking the law, 
You know, mm-hmm. known as evangelicals, breaking the law. They were the first ones to ordain women in the 1800s. You know, I'm like, these are my people, right? How do we bring that tradition back? Right. So I, I am with you, and, and I'm hoping that as some of these people kind of start getting some momentum, we start finding each other, that, that, that there's a way for us to say, okay, we're adding more seats to this table. You know, there is something powerful happening here. How do we push this? and really get what's happening out to yep. the mainstream. Yep. Because it, it, oh gosh, it, man. it needs to happen, Jamar. It it's, has it's, to. It's, it, the, the, the roadmap is out there. I mean, guys like Dr. Pinnell have been talking about this, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Here's, here's what I think. I think um, we need to have a fully funded uh, Black Christian confab, invite only, smallish group, 10, 20 people, no tweeting, no video record. We get the best black Christian thinkers in a room mm. and we, for a couple of days and we said, what, what, what do we need to do? Yeah. That's, that's one thing. And that needs to be fully funded. It needs to be somewhere gorgeous because this work is exhausting yeah. and it needs to function also as a retreat and a, and a recovery. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know, that's probably 70, $75,000 or something. And then we also need um, beyond that, the stuff that everyday folks can do, get on Goodreads, get on Amazon, get on Target, Barnes and Noble, wherever you get your books and leave a, buy it and then leave a review. Yeah. Leave a yeah. review. I mean, that's, anybody can do that, right? Absolutely. Read it, leave a review. Um, amplify it in whatever way you can. Even if that's just, I got three friends on a group chat and I'm going to make the book recommendation. Or you've got a favorite podcast that you listen to, New Evangelicals. You need to have this author on, or you need to have this pastor on. Yeah. You can advocate, right? Advocate in terms of amplifying. And every single one of us has the opportunity to amplify somehow, some way. The other thing we need to do is it's going to take the virtue of humility for white people to take a step back and make space for black and brown folks. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Because you have the, you, you, you have the historic and contemporary platform, even if it's not a, you know, Beth Moore platform or Tim Whitaker platform. Right. You, you take up the space in the room. Mm. Your voice is loud in the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Which is going to mean not that you are diminished or any less, but that in a sort of Philippians 3 yes. Yes. kind of way. Right. You, 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 you take a step back so that others who have been forced back totally can now have the opportunity to 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 take up the right amount of space that they deserve as image bearers of God Absolutely. and not have to shrink because of white supremacy. I'm reminded so, of I mean, oh sorry, yeah. didn't mean to cut you. No, I'm there. just saying those are some ways that we can, you know, do something. I'm reminded of um I was listening to a Bible project and Tim Mackey was talking about the early church and like just some of the dynamics and he was saying how you know for Paul when you're at the his one of his points is he has in mind that at the table there's an uh, an equity that's given, right? And, and that naturally, 
the people at that table were not equitable, um, didn't have equality in, in the culture. You might have had the orphan there, the widow there, yeah. the rich yeah. person there, yeah. the slave there. And at the table, the rich is de-elevated and the poor is elevated. It's an equality, Look at that. right? Look at that. And there's a very like, dare I use the word biblical, <laughs> you know, concept to like people realizing who are, who are, even if I didn't, obviously I couldn't control where or how I was born. We all know that. But given what I've inherited in this white privilege sense to know, okay, at the table of Christ, I come down and people come up and we meet and then we're equals, right? And then we try yeah. and help grow together from there. I think there's yeah. something super beautiful about that. And, and, and it, it, it's Christ-like, isn't it? Isn't the point yeah. to, to sacrifice for the other, to love the other? You know, isn't that the point? Well, now you're getting into the the really radical nature of the gospel. Yeah. Because what yeah. you're talking about goes so against the grain of what is normal that it, you will be a weirdo. <laughs> you will absolutely <laughs> stick out yeah. for doing that because yeah. that is not the norm. And, and, and I just want to touch on two quick points because I felt like, you know, I, I rambled a lot, but there was, there was, there was a point in, in some of the other stuff. Sure. You, 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 I want to bring up the, the, the issue of white lash hmm. backlash. Okay. <laughs> you know, Got it. You know, um, every major movement for progress for black people has been met with equal, if not greater, backlash from white people. Mm. And I specify black and white because it's when black people make progress that you see the most vitriolic, the most sustained, the most widespread backlash, which is not to play the oppression Olympics. It's not to say that other groups don't experience backlash. It's to say that the construct of whiteness is most diametrically opposed to blackness and black people, mm. right? So if white supremacy is the issue, right. then whenever the, the, the sort of most demonized group, which is black people, make progress, you're gonna see the sharpest backlash. This happened after the civil war. I write about this in The Color of Compromise. Mm -hmm. uh, reconstruction, some of us have heard about, that's ended in 1877 with a compromise that gives Rutherford B. Hayes the presidency in exchange for withdrawing federal troops from the South, which means there's nobody there to enforce black civil rights. And then the, that period is called hauntingly redemption because hmm. now they've taken this Christian word that's supposed to be a good news word. And what redemption means in US history in the 19th century is white people uh, creating a new form of racial oppression called Jim Crow mm. after the abolition of slavery. So there's the backlash there. Uh, the civil rights movement, the backlash to the civil rights movement has been the rise of the religious right, has been yep. uh, right. Uh, the, the war on crime, has been uh, the demonizing of the inner city, that kind of a thing. And now in the wake of the 2020 election, when in so many ways, black people played, black voters played a critical part in getting Joe Biden elected over Trump. The backlash is an insurrection on January 6th. Yep. The backlash yep. is quote unquote, the big lie that the election was stolen. That's still 
being propagated right now as we speak? Still being propagated and promulgated. And I'm going to say that as a Christian, we ought to be dedicated to the truth. And I don't care if it's your favorite broadcaster, podcaster, pundit saying the election was stolen. Right. Stolen. It is a lie. It's a lie. Totally. And we cannot get down with that. That's part of the Ten Commandments. It's 101, right? man. 101. <laughs> it's basic. So that's one point. Um, we're, we, we're always faced with backlash, and in particular, when Black people um, get our rights and, mm. and make progress. Second thing I'll say, we're talking about questions, right? When, yeah. when you're trying yeah. to talk to somebody um, and, and they say, just preach the gospel. I want to ask them, what's the how? Yeah. How yeah. does it work? That's okay, good. so that's good. just preach the gospel, just stick to the Bible, and, and that's going to change. And I'll say, how does that actually change our racial situation? Well, as you know, somebody converts, they're going to be more like Jesus. They're not going to hate people. They're going to treat people better. Okay, cool. How does it work? How does that approach work at my seminary, where when I started, there were less than five Black Americans in a city who are students in a city that was 80% black. Hmm. Second highest proportion of black people in any city, over 100,000 people, Jackson, Mississippi. Hmm. When I started there, I could count on one hand the number of black American students. Now you tell me how you're just preached the gospel methodology does something about that. Right. Or does something about the disproportionate, the, the, the fact that black women die in maternity-related deaths at three times the rate of white women. Tell me, just, just tell me the process. Right. Tell me the formula. Right. Tell me the method. Tell me the plan for how Just Preach the Gospel saves Black mamas. Right. So that the Black babies who were so pro-life about yeah. have their mothers to grow up with. Tell me how that works. Right. Not even in a confrontation. I'm just saying, how does it work? Right. Right. I have yet to find somebody who has the just preach the gospel approach to have anything close to a workable solution for the real racial disparities that we still face. Well, I think the unfortunate reality is because uh, we've really given a um, like a soundbite Christianity to people. Right. And we have mm -hmm. these, we have these little these little lines. Right. Oh, just preach the gospel. But no one's thought beyond that. No one's thought. What is like you said, no one's taken that and thought, OK, how does that change a society? By doing that, oh, it turns out if we are a Christian nation, we're doing a terrible job at it, right? Like, let, let, let's assume we are a Christian nation. We, we're, yeah. It's embarrassing, right? So yeah. it's like once you go, like you said, you you said earlier, a centimeter deep. Once you just tap on that, and underneath it's hollow. They have no, there's no answer, which That's is right. a, is a bummer because these are some of the people claiming to be the most theologically sound. That's right. What? It, it, it honestly sometimes, if it feels this way for me, I can only imagine for you, but I feel like I, I'm in the upside down. I'm in the twilight zone. Like, am I being gaslighted here by everyone I know? Because are we not seeing this? Right, right, right. How I'm, can I be I'm, the only one around here right. who notices this? Uh, right. I, I get it. Again, Black Christianity, Black church tradition, you're in good company. And if you go over to the witness, it, one of the most valuable things, I think, is, is knowing you're not alone. And, 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 you know, organizations like The Witness, that's a powerful function that it serves, is just to say, no, you're not the only one who sees this. You're not yeah. the only one who thinks this is not the way of Christ. You're not the only one who is deconstructing their theology. I love that, you know, the differentiation you made between theology and faith, right? 
there are more people, but you got to find them. And guess what? It's going to be in places that you haven't traditionally looked because you're trying to do something that's non-traditional in a Christian nationalist society. You're trying to be Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. listen. I mean, on that note, I, I, you and I can go forever. We haven't talked about voting, forever. so many other things, yeah. you know. But, but for now, yeah, this is the book, everyone. I have it right here. So there's Jamar, the Coming Race War, expanded edition, a cry for justice from civil rights to Black Lives Matter. Truly a, a, a great read. I'm gonna make sure I put in the show notes links to this, the witness, all that good stuff that you mentioned. Also, Jamar, by the way, if you have a connection to Esau Macaulay, hook me up. I've been trying to get the guy on the oh, show yeah. for a long time. All right, I've been oh. trying to reach out to this boy. Yeah, so. Yeah. Tell him, you know, I'm available. (laughs) But I I love his stuff. I read Reading While Black. Again, just so just thought-provoking, you know, just shatters all my categories. So He's a sharp um, guy. Him and and Charlie Dates are are, are, on on my list. So, Um, But, hey, I appreciate you making time, honestly, Jamar. It means a ton. And, um, you know, I I don't know. I'm behind you all the way, man. Like (laughs) All all the heat you get, man, it's your fault because you ask these questions. You got me fired up. So I'm, I really I'm enjoyed it. it. And, and it. we need it. We need these conversations. So I appreciate the time. We did your um we did your book um How to Fight Racism uh for our book study oh, cool. uh, last year. And it was great. Thank you. There was like 10 Thank of you. us and people loved the book. We used the arc, you know, nice. model. It was awesome. So yeah, so I, you know, again, you're doing great work. I can only imagine how exhausting it must be, frankly. I can tell, you All know, right. from how you talk, it just got away a lot, but whatever we can do to push you guys forward we're fully behind it so (laughs) i love it i appreciate it man absolutely man when you earn your degree online at arizona state university you get everything the nation's most innovative university has to offer the same internationally recognized faculty the same nationally ranked programs the same degree Learn more at asuonline.asu.edu.